Welcome to Leveling the Playing Field, a podcast featuring women who work in sports. My name is Bobby Sue Doyle Hazard, and I am your host. I'm super excited about this week because my guest is Stacy May Fowles. So Stacy May is a baseball writer, but she's more than that. She's an award-winning novelist, journalist, and essayist. She is the author of the Baseball Life Advice e-newsletter, and that was turned into a book last year um, by the same name, which it's really an essay collection that looks at topics ranging from bat flips to bandwagoners, from the romance of spring training to the politics of booing. Um, And she's not afraid to broach the subjects of mental health, sexism, and other cultural issues related to baseball in in her writing. This is a wide-ranging interview, and we touch on all of these topics, plus women in sports journalism, cute animals, of course, and uh, pregnancy aversions. Stacey May um, was had three weeks left until her due date when I interviewed her. We had planned on releasing this the same week that Pitchers and Catchers reported but she really wanted to be able to um, help promote through her social media channels. So we delayed it about a month. Um, She has a beautiful, healthy baby boy, and we are so excited for her. Um, So this is a fun interview. I hope you enjoy it and uh, make sure you give us some feedback. Here we go. Welcome on to Leveling the Playing Field, Stacey May. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really happy to be here. And do you prefer Stacey or Stacey May? I probably should have asked that while we were talking for five <laughs> minutes before I started recording. <laughs> um, Stacey is totally fine. Okay. Um, I'm so excited that we could connect because um, you are a, a beautiful writer and also, you um, write about really important topics and tie it to baseball. One of those important topics is mental health. Um, how did you fall in love with baseball? I mean, I know your book talks about this, um, so I know it's kind of a hard answer to do quickly, but um, I usually start by asking people how they fell in love with sports. <laughs> I, I mean, I can do my best. <laughs> I. I you know, I was one of those, uh, my, my story is most stereotypical and uncommon, I think, um, or maybe common. It, it depends on how you look at it. Um, I was introduced to the game of baseball by my dad, which is the, the sort of stereotypical part. Mm-hmm. Um, he took me to games when I was a kid and, um, I have the, the, the blessed reality of being a person who came of age right when my team, the Toronto Blue Jays went to the world series two years in a row. So um, it's hard not to fall in love with something that gives you that kind of thrill when you're, you know, 12, 13 years old. Sure. Um, But I sort of gravitated away from baseball as I got older. Um, You know, I, I was an arts and culture writer. I studied literature. I um, went to art school for a brief period of time. So I sort of, um, pulled away from sports. Um, you know, there's sort of this, you know, maybe this, the idea that sports was for jocks got to me and Mm I, I kind of separated from my love of baseball. And then in 2011, I actually went through a depression and, um, I had experienced anxiety for a bulk of my adult life, but depression was new to me. And, uh, during that period, um, which was a particularly dark period in my life. Um, 
I, I, you know, I can say that I never really understood what depression looked like until that moment. You know, you think you know what it's going to be like, but it's, it is really when you just stop caring about anything. And I was watching the uh, postseason in 2011, and Justin Verlander was pitching for the Tigers. <laughs> and I remember thinking that I really loved watching him pitch. And for someone experiencing depression, watching something and knowing that you care about it is a big deal. And from there, you know, in the past almost, you know, seven years now, um, I've just completely fallen in love with this game anew and also in a much more obsessive way. Um, I think it, <laughs> it takes up a lot more real estate in my life than it did when I was a teenager and when I was mm-hmm. a kid. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm just in love with it and it, and I don't actually think, I mean, I've written thousands and thousands of words about trying to get to the bottom of why I love it so much. And I still don't think I've figured it out. It just, um, it just makes me so happy. And, you know, we're in the depths of a Canadian winter right now. And I just keep thinking about, Oh my God, they're going to report soon. And (laughs) it's, it's the kind of thing that keeps you going. Right. Sure. And you're, I mean, you're one of those people who I love following on Twitter and, um, I always kind of giggle to myself when the season of baseball ends, postseason's over. And the first day you're like, this is the worst day of my life. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that's my comment. Because um, it feels so bleak, right? It feels <laughs> yeah. like, and I mean, the thing I really noticed that, you know, a lot of the therapeutic process, the traditional therapeutic process is about lending structure to your life. Right. Um, you know, they always say that if you're dealing with anxiety or dealing with depression, you should, you know, have a schedule, you should have structure, you should go to the gym, you should eat healthy meals, like you should... Um, you know, sort of inject a kind of scaffolding into your life so you don't sort of run adrift, right? And baseball is actually very helpful with that. Um, there's there's something about the sport that's it's obviously very basic things like its frequency. It happens so often, right? <laughs> um, that it it can actually add some some structure to your life if you're dealing with a mental health issue and you happen to love baseball. Um, and it also, I mean, it's 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 length is like within a game is you know it's it happens for so much of the year but also a game itself is quite long yeah um and not sort of stopwatch dictated um so it has a soothing quality to it that I think you know as an anxious person I really <laughs> gravitated towards um and when it's gone I I do have to find things to fit into the space in my life it occupies. And I, you know, was saying to a friend of mine recently that I haven't actually figured out what a, a good occupier of time is during the off season. Like I haven't, I haven't perfected the art of distracting myself between, you know, sort of November to February. Which luckily, I mean, compared to say the sport that I work in is a, a much shorter off season. Um, because I, you know, work in football. And so, you know, you've got January until, well, yeah, end of January, February, um, until August, <laughs> really. I mean, <laughs> yeah. or end of July. I mean, people, they, the guys start coming back in, in trickles. You know, you've got the draft in like April and then the schedule comes out soon, which like, Kim, I don't know why we don't get the schedule sooner. But anyway, 
Um, and like all of these things start trickling, but really doesn't pick up until end of July and August. Um, but you've got so fewer games as well, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. My football knowledge is not that great, but I do know that, you know, whenever anybody tells me how the season works in football, I'm like, what? Yeah. You don't play every day? No, (laughs) I know. (laughs) I mean, and it would be like, I mean, can you imagine? Um, uh, actually it would be terrible for the game obviously but um i grew up in a in a household that was primarily baseball and football so um not people playing but watching so sundays in the fall we watched the new england patriots and then um the rest of the year we were paying attention to the red Sox, which i know you love to call the evil empire so, um, I, so that's I a thing. Actually, I don't actually <laughs> refer to the Red Sox as the evil empire, but I just, I, oh, it, it, I don't, I, no, I'm not even going to go there. I'm not, it's, it's the middle of, it's the middle of the, the off season. I'm, I'm feeling generous. There are things about the Red Sox I really enjoy. Let's look at that. I mean, mainly Dustin Pedroia, but you, you know, I, I, I think that, I mean, this off season has been particularly interesting because um, it's becoming abundantly clear that um, the Yankees and the Red Sox are really good. And <laughs> the, the Jays are kind of probably not very good. Sure. Me being generous. So it's, it's been, um, it, it, it's, it's actually because, you know, the off season in baseball, you know, when you're describing football, you're actually making us seem kind of, kind of like whiny brats comparatively because we, you know, we want so much action. Um, and <laughs> a lot of people have complained in this off season that not a lot has happened, which is very true. There hasn't been a lot of exciting um, hot stove action. There right. definitely hasn't been a lot of exciting hot stove action for my team. Um, <laughs> there has definitely been, you know, most of the action is around teams that, can make sure that my team doesn't do well. So um, it's been, it hasn't been the, the uh, best off season, but when you describe it in terms of like, it really is only a couple of months, right. At the, you know, pitchers and catchers report on Valentine's day. So you get, you know, you get to see them and we'll see them any minute now. Um, But But they are the longest months of the year. (laughs) Like, that's nice of you. The hardest. <laughs> and and I know, and I say that as somebody, you know, I grew up in Massachusetts. I'm down in Tampa now, but um, as somebody who, you know, has been dealing with anxiety and depression my entire life, though those months, it just happens to coincide with the longest, coldest, darkest months of the yeah. year, which is, is, is hard for people who have mental health. I mean, it was mental health issues. It was really um, striking when I came down to Tampa, how, how different I am in the winter down here. Oh yeah, most definitely. And I, sometimes I think that maybe part of the reason why I love baseball is because it gives you such an early spring, right? It's, it's, you know, February 14th in Toronto, like, I, I don't know if you know the weather we've been having here, but, you know, it's been like minus 20, minus 17. So, oh, you're American, so I don't know. What that is. No, I mean, the fact that like, you live in that just is beyond me. <laughs> um, and, 
And so, you know, it, it you get, it, it feels like spring on Valentine's Day when you get these photos of these, you know, guys just like running out onto these tiny little Southern Florida <laughs> fields, you know, and it's, it's just a nice, hopeful thing, even though outside it's right. <laughs> just like the frigid tundra. Um, it, it does give you like sort of this flash of optimism um, in a time that you, you have no business having a flash of optimism. Sure. It's, it's a very, um, and I, I mean, I go to spring training every year because I just feel like it, you know, obviously from a loving baseball perspective, it's one of the best things you can do. Mm-hmm. But from a mental health perspective, there is no, there's, it's such a great time to get out of, you know, the weather related depression, right? Because right. it's, um, you're, you're right near the tail end. By the time you get back from spring training, it starts to actually be spring. I don't know, debatable. Toronto doesn't really see spring until the end of <laughs> April, but it, but at least like it gives you some, so momentum towards sure. the end of the winter, which is, you know, it's, it's a very therapeutic sport to care about. And so, um, your team, obviously the Toronto Blue Jays, plays their spring training down in Dunedin, Florida, which is basically like right next door to where I live. Oh, I did not know that. Yeah. So I know that you are expecting your first child in three weeks. Um, yeah, in three weeks. <laughs> uh, are you bringing the baby down for spring training? Um, it's funny because when I got my due date, it's so the baby is expected the week that pitchers and catchers report, which I, you know, I'm like, of oh, course. this baby has a hilarious sense of timing. Um, but I, I did say at the time, oh, can I still go to spring training? Obviously, that's such a new mom thing to say. <laughs> so I don't know how how feasible. Um, that will actually be, so this might actually be the first time I miss spring training in a while. Um, but you know, I am, I am open to the possibility if, if it just means sort of like a weekend jaunt late in spring training, yeah. then it does, but I'm, I'm definitely not counting on that. Um, <laughs> and opening day is early this year. So I think it's the earliest opening day in History. I might be wrong on that, but that, I think I read that a couple days ago. So even less winter to contend with. Business calls are on the rise, so don't miss the chance to connect and bring in new customers. With Ruby Receptionist, all your calls are guaranteed to be answered live by a team of friendly, professional remote receptionists, helping you secure customers and build trust. Ruby is the only live remote receptionist service dedicated to helping business owners turn rings into relationships. From their offices in Portland, Oregon, Ruby delivers exceptional experiences to your callers by answering calls live in English or Spanish, transferring calls, taking messages, addressing common questions, making follow-up calls, and more, just like an in-house receptionist at a fraction of the cost. Most importantly, they sound like they're sitting in your office. To learn more or to get started, visit them online at callruby.com or better yet, give them a call. 888-340-RUBY. That's 888-340-RUBY. I can't remember. Do you guys play in a dome? We do. Yeah. You do? We play oh. in the dome, yeah. 
um, which is sort of a necessity of, of Tor- Toronto baseball. We right. used to play in a place called Exhibition Stadium, um, which is the, the first stadium I went to when I was a kid. And um, the very famous story on opening day, it was uh, they had to get Zambonis to clear the field um, <laughs> because it was it was covered in snow. And it's it, very classic, like Canada. Um, you should look up pictures of like the Blue Jays first game in Toronto was uh, was it, it was just dire. It was in a blizzard. Um, there's very famous stories of of teams for a team forfeited because they were like, I just can't with this weather. <laughs> um, and the, the stadium was actually, it's right near Lake Ontario. Oh. Um, so in the winter, it would just be like blisteringly terribly cold because of the wind coming off the lake. Sure. And in the summer, the seagulls would fly in um, attracted by the food from the vendors. So they would just come in like dive bomb. Every, it was really, it, it has, been argued that it was the worst major league baseball stadium ever. <laughs> <laughs> so when they introduced the dome, the idea being that we could watch games in April and October. Um, so yeah, it, it definitely helps. So it's interesting. I, I've obviously been reading um, your book, baseball life advice, and you have, like I said, your writing is so beautiful and you you have a theme within it that is um, something that I've always thought about. I, and I've loved, I've loved baseball. I don't love baseball the way you do. I don't get into the stats nearly as much, um, but I've always just kind of like, I love that you think I get into stats, but please go ahead. Well, you're far more knowledgeable about like, <laughs> <laughs> like I, I could tell you like, oh yeah, I was at this game. I couldn't tell you half the time who played. Um, but I'll wa- I'll be watching the game and I'll understand what's going on. I just don't have that capacity to remember things for whatever reason, which I don't think is a good thing for a lawyer. But that's a whole other no, conversation. But I, but I also think that that's that's probably more common than you would think, right? Like I sure. I think that there's sort of this misconception about sports that to be able to talk about them with authority or to be able to write about them, you have to have some sort of like encyclopedia knowledge of of the the minutia of it all right Right. but like when i'm writing a book it's i'm looking stuff up like (laughs) (laughs) i know you're like reading it and you'll be like wow it's so amazing that she can remember that you know but i i assure you there was was a period (laughs) where like i was looking you know you know, I would be, and, and I mean, part of the point of the book is that you're feeling these incredible intense emotions mm-hmm. when you're witnessing a game, when you're feeling emotions, you're not going to remember like the tiniest detail of, of a game's dynamic. Um, so, you know, that's what we have reference materials for. Sure. <laughs> you can, you can walk away from a game write down your incredible emotional response to it and then pick up all the details as you go along. That's a good point. I think the same way about being a lawyer. Someone will like, my boss is really funny about this. He remembers like case names and stuff. And I just, it's kind of like when he makes a reference to, I don't know, family guy or something. And I just kind (laughs) of like look at him like, or some movie from before I was born. And I just kind of give him a look like, I don't know. (laughs) 
like I can look it up if I need to. But but so you have this beautiful theme that and it's something I've referred to Fenway as many, many times, especially when I'm down here and complaining about the trap. And I have to say I have friends and, and colleagues at work for the Rays and they're a great organization, but God, that thing. Um so I'm gonna quote you to you, so this is gonna be fun. Um <laughs> Baseball became my thing, and its stadiums my church, a place to pray in times of hopelessness, the source of solace I couldn't feel elsewhere. I never feel more human or more sane than I do inside a ballpark, and that that theme of of it being like a church. So I've never been a very religious person, and um, and for whatever reason, I always refer I refer to Fenway Park as church. And I refer to the Boston Marathon finish line as Mecca. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, I, I mean, it's really, it's, it's an interesting thing because I think that, you know, it, while some of us are not religious, I think that we do have, I know that I personally have an impulse towards the things that religion represents, mm-hmm. um, sort of the broader things, um, those things being belief and community and feeling connected to something bigger than yourself. Um, and I, baseball is really one of the only places where I've ever found that. And I think that, um, people find it in all sorts of places, you know, people find it, find it like, you know, they find it in their love of film or music or books or, you know, Star Trek fandom. Like, you know, you, you find your people. Mm Mm-hmm. And you find a place where you feel safe and you feel hopeful and you feel, I mean, I often describe it as sort of a better version of yourself. And I like who I am when I love baseball um, because I'm not cynical and I'm not negative and I'm not, um, which is interesting because sports fandom can be very cynical. Oh, sure. I, um, for whatever reason, I just tend to be just so full of joy, um, that, which is not a, a normal feeling for me. People often, you know, when I talk to people about my writing, they're like, oh, you're just, you're just so hopeful and you're so positive. And I find that really funny because I'm not <laughs> I'm actually, you know, and, and I've even been accused of being earnest, which is, you know, I've, I've started to embrace, I think somebody, somebody hurled that as uh, me as an insult at some point. And I was like, you know what? No, I think the world needs more earnestness. It needs more, um, just unabashed glee. Um, right. And, but that's not, that's not really how I am in my day to day. Um, but I just, you know, found this place that, that made me feel safe and, connected to other people over this shared love of something. Um, and, you know, the other side of that, of course, is that, you know, we have these conversations about how, how sports culture can be really exclusionary as well. And it can be really, it can be violent and it can be cruel and it can be um, sexist and awful. And yeah. so, you know, you're sort of, it's interesting that like this place I found that I love so much can also be, um, very painful at times. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's just an experience that, um, it's an experience of awareness on multiple levels, right? It's, it's seeing myself, um, 
connected, so deeply connected to a community and caring so much about that community that you want to make it better. Right. And you, you know, you talk about this in your writing a lot and about how um, the culture could be easily what would turn somebody away from sports. In fact, it's part of why your husband never liked sports and um, that you became a devoted fan despite that. Yeah, for sure. I I mean, I remember like when we first started seeing each other, I took him to a Raptors game (laughs) and Raptors games are like compared to baseball Raptors games are like spectacle, right? You know, there's mm-hmm. like fire shooting up and like, yeah. like, you know, there's lights go out and there's montages and like baseball almost feels hokey compared to a, a Raptors game. And he just hated it. He hated <laughs> it. He hated like the t-shirt cannon. He hated, like, <laughs> and that was like very early on. And, and it's just, I mean, it's been really interesting to watch him um, find an aspect of sports that he loves. And I think that's kind of, um, you know, I, I truly believe that people can fall in love with sport if they give it a chance. Mm-hmm. But I also feel like, why give it a chance if it's, if it's repellent? Right? <laughs> like, right. Why would you want to give it a chance? And for me, I obviously wanted to give it a chance because I felt like, you know, as the book described, it saved my life. So mm-hmm. that's a pretty a pretty good reason to give something a chance. Like for my husband, what's the incentive, right? (laughs) Um, I think that like, I think that I completely understand why people want to stay away from sports culture in general. Um, But I think for some of us, like we make more of an effort because we see something in it that really, um, we see an element of value in it that, that makes us feel better and makes us better people. Some of the culture that you talk about is just, you know, the old boys club and women not, basically women shouldn't even be in the ballpark. And that old school way of thinking that you, well, I, I, you know, I love when I see you or one of the other women that I follow in, in sports journalism, uh, right. Um, the, do you even like sports? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it, I mean, that it's one of, one of my earliest experiences with a, with a female tr- sports journalist was I was on a panel with her and she said to me like that one thing she got a lot was, um, when she told people what she did w- would, was exactly that. Do you even like sports? Um, <laughs> did, did you just get into this job by accident? Like, was it something assigned to you? And it, I mean, small sample size, anecdotal, every woman I know who works in the realm of sports, whether it's as a personality um, in TV and radio writing, she works very, very hard to get there. <laughs> right. <laughs> because, right. Because it wasn't a place that was where she felt welcome or was invited in. Um, and I have actually met men who were like, I stumbled into this by accident. <laughs> right. Like, okay. So why don't people ask more men if that's what they, you know, like it it is such a bizarre question to ask somebody. Um, you know, do you like you you wouldn't ask somebody, you know, do you even like banking? You right. Know, like it, <laughs> do you even, even like, like medicine? Like, um and you know, I watch like 
the, the kind of abuse that, you know, some higher profile women get, you know, if, you know, maybe you should go back to the kitchen and um, it's almost like it would be absurd and comical if it wasn't so awful, you know, that, right. that people actually believe that women shouldn't even be talking about sports. Um, but, you know, it's the other side of that is that, you know, I did an interview um, for the book earlier this year where somebody, uh, a male interviewer, challenged me about whether or not there was actually even sexism because his mother always liked baseball. <laughs> and you're like, and I would like to requote you uh, as Exhibit A. Yeah, and it, I mean, there's a lot of, it can be very frustrating, right? Um, right. But it can also be very rewarding and thrilling. I mean, it is a thrilling, it's thrilling to cover sports. It's thrilling to write about sports. Um, there's never a lack of a story. There's never, there's always something happening, um, which is, it's a beautiful thing. It's, it's, uh, it's just a really, it's fun. Um, And I wish that, I wish that there was less garbage and noise around it, but, um, you know, you have to sort of wade through it to get to the part that's beautiful. Sure. How did you move from, you know, writing about arts and culture over to sports? Um, well, I mean, I, I started writing about baseball in 2011 for the simple reason that, um, you know, the same reason we write about the things that we care about. Right. You mm-hmm. know, and I was making a living off, off writing about arts and culture and primarily books, but you know, sometimes I dabbled into to other realms as well. Um, but I, you know, I worked in magazine publishing and I started writing about baseball because I enjoyed it. Um, and I wasn't getting paid to write about baseball because I enjoyed <laughs> it at the time, but it, it kind of felt, um, like an escape, mm-hmm. right? Like, uh, from the rest of my writing and, you know, sometimes the rest of my writing was a bit dark or, you know, the subject matter was difficult. And, um, so it felt like a sort of a safe place to be, uh, you know, and that was part of the reason why I started the baseball life nice newsletter. Um, right. cause I could just sort of freely write about baseball in this closed context, um, and really get back to loving writing again. And then it was sort of one of those, one thing led to another, you know, I got a paid gig. I got another paid gig. I got a few more paid gigs. I got a column. Um, and you know, like any, any writing gig goes, um, but it was interesting that sort of one half of my life was established and the baseball stuff was, I was a total newbie. Yeah. Um, so, you know, you're sort of starting again, you know, in your thirties. Um, and it was, it was fun. It was, you know, it was reinvigorating because it reminded me about why I loved writing in the first place. Um, I think when you do a lot of freelance writing, you can't really bog down with, um, the details of it. Sure. And I mean, I, I don't encourage people to write for free, <laughs> but, right. um, writing for free for myself in, in the context of the newsletter was actually, um, really rewarding because it, it allowed me to experiment with what kind of baseball writing I wanted to be doing. Um, which I, I mean, I think you might have noticed it's not sort of <laughs> the status quo baseball writing. I'm, right. I'm still not. I'm still not totally sure where it fits in, but um, it it definitely you know, newsletter gave me the freedom to do it on a weekly basis. So 
Sure. Yeah, well, it was just sort of this gradual building. I think um, it, with regards to your newsletter, I mean, the, the great thing about it is that you connect baseball to, to life generally. And the things that are going on, you know, whether it be with a particular player, um, I remember, gosh, within the last six months, um, there was a, a pitcher who was having a really hard time who um, talked about feeling down and maybe a little depressed. And, and that, was a, that was a pretty big deal because that's not talked about much, right? And you had a, a beautiful newsletter about that. Um, I forget who the player was because... Asuna, I think it was, yeah? He was, yeah. He was talking about how he was facing some anxiety. Yep. Um, yeah, and, and you find this a lot. You find that like within the realm of sports, it's actually quite rare that athletes talk about any mental health issues they face, whether they are diagnosed or just simply... I'm having, having feelings. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Like it's, um, you know, there was the one thing that really struck me about the world series was that, um, you know, there's so many great stories that came out of the world series, but I got really fixated on the fact that Clayton Kershaw said after the Dodgers lost the world series, he said, maybe one day I won't fail. And oh my gosh. To, to just think that Kershaw, who is one of the most elite players ever, mm-hmm. Um, to for his perspective to be that he's a consistent failure um, sort of blew my mind, right? And I immediately just wanted to write a piece about how, um, you know, on a on a huge scale level, because he's you know so high profile and just lost a really high profile thing. That sort of mirrors the way we treat ourselves, right? Sure, we can do we can achieve all of these things, we can do all of these great things, and then one thing that feels very important can happen and we can feel like a failure across the board. Um, so, you know, I'm kind of a person who sees those, those smaller details. Um, I've never sort of been really good at like game recaps or, you know, or projections or predicting right. anything. Like I'm always just kind of like, I predict we're going to have fun. <laughs> <laughs> well, I um, think you, I think you capture, capture the human aspect of it as opposed to just like, you, you know, these guys aren't doing their jobs right or well, or like yeah. the noise that you tend to hear right after someone loses or, or something like that, like you humanize the guys and, and you know, in a way that is um, poetic almost. Well, there's this weird thing, the way we don't treat athletes um, the same way we treat ourselves. Um and there's always that kind of like, well, they make so much money. So that aside, right. um, like h- how are you great at your job every day? Do you come to your <laughs> job every day and you're the, you're the best ever? Like it's, it's this weird kind of, you know, a pitcher has a bad start and all of a sudden the entire world is like, maybe we should get rid of him. Maybe we should send him down. Like it's, <laughs> it's, it's really it's just this, this extreme work environment that I find so bizarre. Well, and in um, baseball, I always laugh. I always laugh with baseball in particular. Hockey a little bit too, because again, tons of games and basketball. But like the early season, oh my God, we've got to get rid of them. We've got to get rid of them. And it's like, there's 160 games left. Yeah. Like, yeah. maybe slow your roll. <laughs> 
or yeah. like fire the manager and you're like it maybe we get to july before you start saying that like i don't know well what's what my thing is that it's it's always early and then all of a sudden it's late yeah um, so i basically <laughs> spend like until august being like it's still early guys <laughs> yeah exactly and then all of a sudden i'm like oh wait it's so not early anymore <laughs> um and they, i mean the last season the last jay season like we had such a bad start it really tested my um it's so early impulse <laughs> because I, I mean we lost like i can't remember what the actual number was but it was like the worst start ever um and I just you know i would just be like it's fine and not not for a second, believe it. Um, so, I mean, but it is, it is very, it is a very forgiving game. It is, it, it's frequency means that you can, you can turn things around and, you know, just to loop back to what we were talking about, um, you know, mental illness sort of tricks you into believing you can't turn anything around. Right. Um, you know, when I had severe anxiety, I, I believed that it would never change, right. It would never, every day I would wake up and I would feel this way. Um, and, and I think that the fact that your team can go on like a dozen game winning streak is, is sort of this nice tidy metaphor for things can turn around very quickly. I love to buy myself shoes, but it's super easy for me. I just go online, check out what pair of heels I want. I know what size I am. Boom, done. Maybe 20 minutes, depending on how down the rabbit hole I get of all the shoes I want. Apparently with kids, it's not quite that simple Uh, with their feet constantly growing, with them just wrecking their shoes all the time. uh, It's quite a hassle. And so that's why I tell my friends with kids to check out Easy Kicks. With Easy Kicks, kids can wear their shoes as long as they want. And once they are wrecked too small or just want a new style, they you can send back those shoes in a prepaid shipping envelope and Easy Kicks will donate the wrecked shoes or two small shoes to a nonprofit partner. Um, each shipment comes with a personalized box with fun stickers for the kiddos. And it's only $20 a month per child. There are no limits to how often you can swap for a new pair. And the pairs that you get are going to be from Nike. Um, they're released each week, uh, new styles, and there are no catches, hidden fees, and you can cancel anytime. Visit easykicks.com slash join now to sign up and use discount code EZLISTEN. That's E as in Edward, Z as in zebra. Listen at checkout for $5 off your first month in the club. That's easykicks.com slash join now. Discount code EZLISTEN at checkout. Well, and in your book, you talk about pitchers and their ability to... Um, you know, go out there, fail, and then come right back four days later, five days later, whatever the cycle is. I should know this. Um, <laughs> yay, sports ball. Um, <laughs> but you know, like, and and the fact that they're constantly putting themselves out there in front of millions of people, thousands of people, depending on the team, um, and and all that pressure on them, and and the the great metaphor that can be for our day-to-day lives. Yeah. It's, it, 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 it never stops impressing me. And, you know, when you, when you're sort of surrounded by the noise of people like talking about how a player is trash or, you know, get rid of him or, you know, and, and to watch somebody endure that, 
And and the thing that always boggles my mind is how they the sort of this effort to conceal what's going on in their heads. Right. And also like nine times out of ten, them saying, No, I wanna stay in. Right. You know, like you right. so rarely see a pitcher be like, Thank God you came and pulled me out because I was like you that's not a reaction you see. You see, oh no, just let me stay in, I can turn this around. Um, and I just think that, you know, a lot can be learned from that kind of resilience and that ability to bounce back. Um, it's also heartbreaking to watch when oh it my happens. Gosh. So um, I can't like so I, bad. especially in an October game, right? When things are, the stakes are so high. And, but, and, de- and depending on how much they fight back, you know, like there are some times where you see like a little bit of resistance and they're like, okay, fine. And then others where they're just like, no, I got this. I can do it. And you're like, Oh God. You're yeah. I, th- I mean, I think, I think uh, Verlander to loop it all back to Verlander, he gave up a home run in the postseason yeah. and, and they put him in as a reliever. And I remember thinking, Oh, this is, this is such a poetic moment. What a beautiful moment. And then he gave up a home run. <laughs> and I felt like somebody had like kicked my puppy. Like I felt yeah. like it just was it was supposed to be like this beautiful narrative and instead it was and I remember his face was, you know, Verlander is like really good at making a I can't believe that just happened face. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um and I, you know, it's it's just I don't it, it's amazing to like baseball is just a, uh, you know, sometimes it happens, you know, that's the lesson is that it happens and you have to shake it off and you have to move forward. Um, it's so basic. It's almost like a child's lesson, but I think it's one that we totally forget. Um, and oh, baseball yeah. is a venue in which we see it every day. Right. <laughs> it's like every game, there's some sort of instance of somebody having to shake something off or, um, you know, like watching a guy get caught stealing or, mm-hmm. you know, watching somebody strike out and they just, you, you know, and then zooms in on their face being like, I can't believe I just did that. Right. Um, and then they just move on and something great happens. Right. So I don't know, in terms of mental health lessons, that's pretty, pretty <laughs> on the nose. right? Yeah. <laughs> oh, for sure. I mean, I think we all, you know, are kind of like, when you're facing something like that and you're having that hard time of even just like getting out of bed. Right. And it's a very simple act of getting out of bed. That can be the hardest thing to do. And just knowing like, all right, if that guy could put himself out there and be watched by millions of people and have a really crappy day and then come back a few days later, I can maybe get out of bed and take a shower. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Some days I can't, but yeah. <laughs> oh, I know. Yeah, Wait, there sure. and there are others that you can't. Absolutely. And there are some days that they can't. I mean, they come out and it's just, they, you know, they get in that rut sometimes. Um, yeah. The, the way that you describe yourself as a baseball fan is as a narrative baseball fan. What does that mean to you? Oh, I, I just, I'm more compelled by... Um, a good juicy baseball story mm-hmm. than I am by statistical analysis, you know, win loss records, like more, like I just, <laughs> I I'm so much more interested in, you know, a, a player's sto- his story, even if it's, you know, not that, 
like there are players who, you know, overcame this, that, and the other, but there right. are also players who just have these, you know, these small stories that even stuff like, you know, players' pets. Yes. <laughs> like, you know, their dog died and I get really upset because some players' dog died. You know, I, I, I look more for the human stories than I do. Um, the, the more sort of feats of athleticism, I guess. Sure. Um, and I don't, I don't actually think one is more important than the other. I just think that, you know, certain personality types are compelled by certain things. Mm -hmm. So I think there's room for all different kinds of stories in the realm of sports. Absolutely. Um, And I, you know, if I'm given an opportunity to tell some of those stories, I feel really lucky. Um, Sometimes I'm just given an opportunity to yell about how great those stories are, and I do that as well. But, um, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm just more, you know, I'm interested in in how a player gets to the place they are, how they end up on the mound, how they end up at first base. Um, you know, I'm interested in some of the, the players that I'm more drawn to are, are those that have, who are not necessarily the superstars, but, right. you know, have interesting personality quirks or interesting stories. The, um, the baseball players and animals, um, you, well, I kind of have a bone to pick with you about this. So <laughs> Wait, can I take my banana bread out before you? Y- yes. Okay. Hold on one <laughs> I feel like this is a good time for me to take my banana bread out. If you're going to pick a bone with me. Okay. So my bone to pick with you has to do with, <laughs> with your, um, newsletter. And your athlete with a dog, which is great. I love dogs, but you never have athletes with a cat or athletes okay. with a mini pig or a koala. That is not true. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> so I'm going to clarify this issue. So baseball players more commonly have dogs. Um, at least in public ways, um, in ways that I can source. Um, right. There are athletes with baseball players with cats. Um, I have featured them. Um, I have, it is an adorable animal section. So I have featured horses. I believe there was Kershaw with a koala. No, not a koala kangaroo. Okay. Um, there was that donkey. <laughs> um, oh, yeah. but there's also so I I did post a picture of Jose Batista with a tiger cub once Ooh. and somebody complained about um, exotic animals yeah. and so I took that to heart I thought you know what maybe I don't want to I don't want to delve into the world of athletes and, and exotic animals maybe that's not right so I've I, just I can see that I've I've stayed in the in the world of domestic, and um, part of the issue is that most of them just have dogs. All right. So, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm keeping that in. I don't care. So, if you if you find a baseball player with a cat, please do send it. I will um, have Matt to Lattos search. had a cat named Cat Lattos. <laughs> <laughs> That was featured prominently. I also think that there's another guy who has like one of those hairless cats. I can't remember. Oh, God. But yeah. 
Those are weird. Um, see, this is the important stuff I report on. This is <laughs> it's it's <laughs> a delightful. Your newsletter is like a delightful little break every time you send it out because it's not super super long. And um, and then of course there's an athlete with an animal and at the bottom, which always makes it nice. And it's just a- and I'm not offended by people who like skip right to the end. That's totally if you are just there for the picture of the adorable animal, that's okay. <laughs> um, I've actually noticed um, since I have been pregnant, I've been really into baseball players with adorable children. <laughs> like, that's been a thing and. The Jays were just on winter tour in Vancouver, and there was a picture of Dalton Pompey and Aaron Sanchez coloring at a table or doing Lego at a table mm-hmm. with children, and they were seated in these tiny chairs. Yeah. <laughs> and Sanchez and Pompey are both exceptionally large men, like <laughs> very tall men. Yeah. Um, like I've I've been you know within a foot of Dalton Pompey and it he was just like towering so the <laughs> idea of him in this like tiny chair <laughs> just brought me so much joy um see this is what happens in the off season you're you're basically dregs of news well these yeah athletes in these tiny chairs <laughs> athletes and little kids always gets me I mean Little kids in sports always gets me, right? So, like, when they're yeah. first starting to play t-ball and they're little bobbleheads with their helmets or, you know, soccer and they're just kind of swarming around in no real good way. <laughs> and um, like, at my former job, when I used to work at a magazine, we actually had an email thread called Sports Cry oh. where we would send each other sports stories that were tearjerkers. Um, and very often they involve children. <laughs> oh yeah. They involved, you know, like, um, David Ortiz meaning a little kid or like, you know, yeah. and it was quite a lengthy thread of, um, quite a few staff members on the, and it wasn't even a sports related job. It was just that <laughs> sports cry is, is such a, everybody knows what a sports cry is. Yeah. Everybody's had a sports cry, you know, I've had many sports cries. Um, yeah, the, there, there's a whole genre of writing of sports crime. Well, and now it's basically the hashtag sports doing good, right? I mean, yeah. pretty much every story with that hashtag is, is something incredible um, that you end up getting all teary about. And I don't know, it just touches you in, in, in all the feels, I guess. Um. You have some pretty um, strong opinions on stadium hot dogs. <laughs> yes, I do. Um, Please so share. This is, my, this is my hilarious. So I started writing for The Athletic this year, okay. um, which, you know, your listeners might be familiar with The Athletic. They, you know, are constantly acquiring new people from sports media. Right. Um, so I started writing for them this year and, um, right around the time that I found out I was pregnant and my first trimester was particularly brutal. And, (laughs) um, one of my aversions was the ballpark. Um, I could not handle, I could not handle the smell of beer and hot dogs. Yeah. Um, and I, 
would literally the ballpark made me ill <laughs> mm-hmm. for, for about 12 weeks um, from May to what, 12 weeks to, to July, right? May, June, June. Yeah. May, July into August. Um, I, so I was a, I was a baseball writer. Yeah, that's a little <laughs> Couldn't tough. go to the ballpark. Um, so I haven't had a hot dog for 10, 10 months, maybe. <laughs> so my hot dog knowledge, my strong opinions of hot dogs have actually changed considerably because now I find them revolting. Um, but I, previous to that, um, I, I've always been sort of disappointed by the hot dog offering at Rogers anyway. Um, it wasn't until I had a Dodger dog that I realized how lacking, um, we were in the hot dog department. Interesting. And was that on your, your California road trip that ended up as a baseball pit stop every few hundred miles? (laughs) During that trade, actually ended with Dodger dogs, and I was like, nice. "Yeah, this is a real thing." I'd heard many times that like Dodge, Dodger dogs were were elite, and and it was proven true. But I but I I think that the the whole having an aversion to the smell of the ballpark thing is just the. I've actually never told my editors at the Athletic that the way I solved that <laughs> problem was I did sort of offsite interviews. Um, oh gosh! <laughs> like, so I focused. I focused a great deal on base, like baseball people who had written books, because oh, okay. I could meet them. I could meet them at their publisher's office, and there'd be no worry of like it smelling like beer and hot dogs while I was there. <laughs> um, yeah, you, I know. I know. <laughs> no, I. I mean, listen. This is just something that we have to deal with if we have kids, right? Um, is Sometimes there are those aversions and yeah, and, uh, there, I mean, there was a moment like it, I was interviewing the VP of fan engagement with the Jays and like in the middle of the interview, I was like, I'm going to throw up in front of this man, which I've never told <laughs> oh, him, no. but, <laughs> so, um, but you know, there was a lot of that. Um, there was a lot of, cause I was promoting the book at the same time. Um, so I was doing like some radio and TV and, you know, it's, it can be very hard to keep it together when you have morning sickness. So yes, it's been have, an interesting baseball year. <laughs> I have some friends who uh, their entire pregnancies were just kind of miserable um, for them. And I think just certain bodies handle it better than others. You know, it just, yeah. it is what it is. I mean, and you it can't ever predict. Random. Yeah, it's very <laughs> random. But hot dogs was a, a slap in the face. Um, yeah. Well, even though you have your thoughts on my my dear Red Sox, you do like Fenway Franks. I do. I do. That is absolutely true. And that ballpark is beautiful. Oh, my God. I love it. Yeah, it's gorgeous. <laughs> I love it, and I miss it. And um, I get very excited when 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 I do end up traveling up north, and I can catch a game there, but I'll make, I make sure to go down to, um, JetBlue park when they're here. Um, cause it's like a little mini kind of, yeah. Fenway. It's, isn't it Ish. like actually literally a miniature Fenway? They, yes. they built it, but yeah, it's pretty cute. <laughs> it is really cute. Um, I really, I, I honestly like spring training for me is just heaven. It's completely heaven. Um, it's, 
you know, I'm, I'm like ticking more of the stadiums off my list and, mm-hmm. and I just can never get over how just intimate and relaxed and, you know, the, the renovation they've done on the late Tigers Lakeland stadium is so beautiful. And just I, it, it, the fact that they play these games and they don't mean anything. And it's just such a, like, there's like little kids playing catch. And oh my gosh. Everywhere. Just, yeah, and it's it's just so like it's a, it's what I imagine heaven looks like, right? Like <laughs> nobody cares about anything, and you know everybody's like kind and yeah. I don't know. I'm 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 in a far off dreamy place now. <laughs> well, no, I mean I feel the same. It's so I you know where I work, we're right near Steinbrenner Field, which I have personal thoughts on because of my my Red Sox fandom, but. It's every every spring our organization goes over there for a game um, for like an employee outing, which is awesome. And, and also then, like a little mini Yankee Stadium. It's the same purpose, yes, right? Yes. Yeah. It's really cute. Um, and they they've done renovations a lot actually in the last year or so. And then um, my birthday is at the end of March, the 22nd. So it's kind of smack dab usually, in, you know towards the end of spring training. So um, I will always, you know, try and bop around. I haven't done it as much as I'd like to. I have to start planning out this year, taking a couple days and going to a bunch. But it's so easy within an hour drive, hour and a half of where I live. There are six ballparks, I think, which is incredible. Um, So I have to do a better job this year of going to some of the others but um it is always such a fun time and it's just it is it's so relaxed and um the guy you can tell the guys are having a lot of fun with it right because that pressure isn't really on them um they're just trying to get themselves warmed up i guess for yeah i I think i went to i went to a game and um i think it was i want to say it was um the the Atlanta stadium in Orlando, the one that's sort of in Disney world. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yep. <laughs> and I think R.A. Dickey was like messing around with a fastball and he's a knuckleball pitcher. Right. And he was just <laughs> yeah. like, I was just trying out a fastball. And like, <laughs> and the interview afterwards, he was just like, well, that didn't work. And there's just <laughs> something so ni- like nice about that. <laughs> right. It's just really, um, it, it's just very low pressure and, um, you know, and the, the, you know, my team has had, had some pretty high stakes years in a row. So I, it, it can be very relaxing to, to just be in an environment where nothing really matters. Right. It's just, right. yeah. I, yeah, I always enjoy it. Um, you also have some thoughts, um, that you have shared about bandwagon fans. Yeah. I love them. <laughs> <laughs> can, can you get into That's that a little? Thing. Um, yeah, I, I just, uh, I, my whole feeling of bandwagoners is why wouldn't you want more people loving your team? <laughs> I don't really understand this kind of, um, oh, you know, this is some secret circle or some, you know, secret clubhouse and there's a handshake to get in. Um, and I think bandwagoners sort of reinvigorate things. They make mm-hmm. things so much more fun. And everybody was a bandwagoner at some point, right? Like right. everybody was a new fan. 
Um, so I just think this idea that like we have to keep people out of the secret society of sports is the most <laughs> ridiculous idea. Um, I yeah no, and I know that especially in the case of the Toronto Blue Jays, um, the bandwagoners just completely revolutionized um, sports culture in this city. Um, you know, we were not a baseball town before mm-hmm. all these people climbed on board. So I just think that um, to reject them as to reject them and make them feel like um, they don't know what they're talking about. Right. It's just a silly practice. I, um, I remember <clears throat> uh, back when I was graduating college, um, one of my girlfriends gave me a, a pink Red Sox hat. And I, I remember looking at it being like, really? But I loved it. And, and I wore it everywhere. And then like a year later, we won the World Series. And I'd wear my pink hat. And people would be like, oh, you're a pink hatter. And I'm like, I just don't like, I don't even know what that means. But on top of that, I don't really care. Yeah. I mean, there's always this thing. It's like if your hat is new, people are always like, oh, so you just became a fan of the team. And (laughs) it's like, oh, I just bought a new hat. You know, like it's just. Right. Well, with baseball hats, right? They're supposed to be kind of dirty, broken in, kind of like a glove. You know, like you're supposed yeah. to have like sweated in it, slept in it, you know. But I mean, for for me, it's like bandwagon fans have this really, I mean, especially in Toronto, the phenomenon in Toronto is that all these new people became interested in baseball. And what happened was the dialogue around the game expanded, right? So there was... Mm-hmm so many different perspectives and so many different ways of talking about it and ways of enjoying it. And, you know, everybody was doing a piece on the Jays, right? Because they were going to October and that was fun. (laughs) That wasn't wasn't like, Oh, they've ruined it. (laughs) It It was like, everybody is talking about that. You're finally getting recognized. The thing you love is finally getting recognized on a broad scale. Um, and if you're a sports fan, you know that that will fade, right? <laughs> like, right? If your team is not good two years from now, three years from now, four years from now, those people will fall away. Um, so just enjoy the party while it's happening um, because it may not last. Right. right. Need to go back to school but can't find the time with your busy schedule? Florida International University has 20 years of excellence in online education, which is pretty remarkable because there wasn't online education when I was in school, or that means I'm old. FIU Online has a range of programs and services to support student success, including success coaches, academic coaches, advising, and tutoring. And FIU's online students earn degrees from a university that is committed to learning, research, entrepreneurship, innovation, and creativity so graduates are prepared to succeed in a global market. Check out their website for more information at fiuonline.com slash podcast. That's fiuonline.com slash podcast. You know, we talked a little bit about your husband and getting him, you know, interested in sports. One of the funnier things that I read um, in your book was his reaction to Navarro and, and the things that 
he would yell out when Navarro's walk-up music would come on. Yeah, maybe we could be friends. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was like, oh, that's like what I yell at a concert. <laughs> <laughs> Let's be friends. Yeah, yeah. That was it's just so adorable. Well, and his reasoning for Navarro becoming his favorite player, you know, most people would be like, right. well, you know, he's got this average or he can do this or whatever. And he was like, he just seems really nice. <laughs> <laughs> What what a what an adorable but also like really valid reason for right. their favorite player, right? Like it it just you know, and it sort of harkens back to you know some of the reasons why. I mean, for me and the Jays and coming back to the team, Adam Lind was kind of my gateway player, right? Mm-hmm. And Adam Lind is not he's not a high profile major league baseball player, um, but I always kind of. I just liked him. (laughs) I just just thought he seemed nice and unassuming and like sort of like, aw shucks. Yeah. You know, some people who are less into the sort of like complexities of sports are drawn to the idea that maybe somebody's just a nice guy. (laughs) Right. Right. And, And obviously with a caveat that we can never really know that, but Right. I mean, if your if your favorite player is going to be the nice guy, that's that seems like a perfectly valid reason. Yeah, I think it's perfectly fine. Um, you're um, you you have a lovely kind of um, homage to Allison Gordon in your book. Yeah, and um, it was really sweet to read. Can you talk about um, who she? was and um and what even though you never met her she meant to you yeah absolutely so she um was i think there's a little bit of conflict about what first she was um i think i think she wasn't full-time so she wasn't the first female full-time beat writer, but she was the first beat female beat writer, I think is the distinction. Um, late seventies, early eighties. Um, and she, she started writing, she was a beat writer for the Toronto star. And she started writing around the time that they lifted the ban on women in clubhouses. Um, so it was very, a very recent lifting of the ban. Um, and she sort of slogged it out on the beat. Um, she, I think she left after four seasons. See, this is what I'm saying about looking stuff up, right? <laughs> <laughs> I think it was something around four seasons. Um, and she ended up writing a book about her experiences um, called Foul Balls. Mm-hmm. And it is a beautiful book. I highly recommend it to anybody um, who is interested in baseball. She writes so beautifully about the game, but she also writes about the kind of um, sexism she faced during that very early era of female sports writers. Um, and she was just, I know I, when she died, which was, you know, not that long ago, um, I interviewed some of her friends. Uh, I sort of, I was lucky enough to be connected to some people who, a, a band that played in her house, <laughs> um, she let a band practice in her house and she made guacamole for all of them. And so, um, the band members, one was actually my boss and another one was my mentor at school. So I, I, I <laughs> that's incredible. Both of them said, 
that she was um, extremely salty individual. She was, um, she had a wicked sense of humor. She was very, um, she was sort of tough as nails. And I, you know, in reading this book, it was just like such an inspiration for her to have slogged it out in this environment, um, which has a lot of similarities to the way things are now, Mm-hmm. But obviously it was so much harder when she was a trailblazer and breaking ground. So, yeah, I I have a great deal of respect for her. And it's really nice this year. She was um, she had a distinction in the Canadian Baseball Hall of Fame. So it's nice to see that she's getting the recognition she deserves. Yeah. Um, but it does consistently surprise me that people don't know who she is. Um, and you know, I just, I'm sort of an evangelist for that book because it like, I've bought it in every single edition. Oh my gosh. It's just such a lovely, you know, it's sort of Roger Angel caliber, like beautiful writing about the game, but also about, um, the experience of being a woman inside the game, which is a perspective that we don't get a huge amount of. Right. Yeah. Um, I, as I was reading your book, I'm like, uh, immediately was like on Amazon, just adding it to my little like books to get list, even though you can't really get it through Amazon. So I'm gonna have to look elsewhere. But um, it was one I hadn't heard about. And, and you're right, I don't, I couldn't remember if I had heard her story before. Um, and what shocked me was, I mean, it shocked me and it didn't shock me were some of the letters that she received and, you know, from people, but then also, you know, the parent that somebody, somebody said she liked being in the clubhouse because she was a whore. That was, yeah, because she got to see all the, all the um, naked men and the only other people who like that are whores or something, which is like, Jesus. But then at the same time, how many times do we see someone like Sarah Spain or, Julie DeCaro or any of those, you know, really outspoken female sports journalists get some sort of Twitter reply that's similar. Right. Yeah, I no, mean, it's it, it, reading that book is sort of a lesson in, oh, we've come so far. Oh, we haven't come far at all. Right. right. It's, it's this very, I mean, it, it's, it, I, and I remember when she she got the Canadian, uh, it was announced that she was getting the Canadian Baseball Hall of Fame distinction. Um, you know, people were were telling stories about how, you know, she was shut out of the clubhouse and she, you know, she, people just were awful to her. Um, yeah. And she was just trying to do her job. She was like, she was not, she was not, there was nothing particularly revolutionary about what she was trying to do, but everything she did was revolutionary. Right. Um, so yeah, I, th- I think it, it sort of amazes me that, you know, more people don't know about her. And, and I think that the, the Canadian baseball hall of fame is, is definitely taking a great step in terms of, of building awareness about who she was and what she did. Um, you, you know, aside from baseball, which clearly you love, um, you no, also, no, <laughs> just a little bit, <laughs> just, a, just a little. Yeah. <laughs> Is it more than love? Um, <laughs> you, you write about other things, shockingly enough. Um, and you've written novels. Can you, I have, yeah. What are, so I haven't read any of them. 
Um, and I'm just putting that out there. Because I want to be transparent. No, (laughs) listen to what I'm about to say. I want to hear from you what they're about before I do end up getting them. Because like I said, your writing is, is gorgeous. So I can't imagine not reading them. The baseball one was something that I felt particularly close to, which is why I read it. Um, Yeah, no, I, I've written, um, I've written three novels. Um, I've, you know, I've been writing for, probably like 18 years now, close to 20 years now. Um, <laughs> but, but I mean, it's, it's interesting because like I, I have developed this entirely new audience as I started writing about baseball and a lot of them are not sort of aware of um, my, my older writing. And, and I, I just think that I, I, I think that we sort of, we decide who we are and we try to sort of fit ourselves into those boxes. And I think that I never in a million years would have thought I would become a baseball writer. Sure. And I, you know, I run into people I grew up with and people I knew in former lives and they're like, what? (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I just think that, you know, I spoke, I spoke to an MFA program last weekend and, and I just was sort of talking about my, you know, quote unquote career journey, if you want to call it that. And I, you know, the, the message I sort of delivered that day was that like, don't count anything out, you know, like, right. <laughs> um, and, you know, I often say like when, when I'm, you know, talking to people, I, you know, I always say, say yes. And then say no, right. Say yes, mm-hmm. say yes over and over again, and then have boundaries, um, so I, you know, I think the trajectory of my writing and how my writing has gone is, is basically me just saying yes to opportunities that looked like they could be fun. And, and when I started writing about baseball, I was like, this could be fun. <laughs> um, and it's taken me, I mean, it's, it's just taken this year, last year yeah, has, you know, just been so unbelievable to me in terms of connecting with people about how baseball has um, helps them get through terrible, dark times, you know, and, and how, you know, talking to people about hope and talking to people about healing and grief and getting over things and getting past things. And I feel very lucky to have had that experience. And I also kind of don't know how I got here. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and, you know, it's just like seven years ago, I was like, oh, you know, I think I want to write about baseball. Um, so I just think that, you know, I, a lot of people ask me if I'm going to go back to writing fiction, and I'm sure I will at some point. But, um, you know, I think that we, it, it's always a good idea to go with um, what feels good for you. Right. And to take opportunities and not feel like if if something looks like it could be fun and, you know, something's profitable, that helps. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, you should definitely say yes, you know, and, and, and that's sort of what I've been doing. And, um, it's, it's been fun to be a newbie, right. It's, been, it's mm-hmm. been fun to be, to sort of start again, I guess, is the, is the idea. Yeah. I think um, throughout our careers, we kind of reemerge, right. In different directions. I mean, me doing a podcast was not something I ever thought about. <laughs> Well, yeah. And I mean, it's interesting, like I spend my work life, you know, one week I'll review a book about, you know, a a novel or, 
you know, a nonfiction book. And, and then a few days later, I'll write a piece about, you know, a, a baseball game. So it's, you don't have to be one dimensional. You don't have to be a certain kind of person or a certain kind of writer or a certain kind of worker. You can be all sorts of things. Well, and I'm guessing having, you know, that, um, breadth of talk topics and, and fiction versus nonfiction writing helps your writing and helps you expand in different ways. Right. Yeah. And I, I mean, I think that a lot of us sort of get stuck in ruts as well. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and to sort of break out of them is, and, and write about something completely different, um, you know, to do something that was what the newsletter was for to do something a little more experimental and, um, experiment with voice and tone and, uh, subject matter is, is really valuable for all writers. Um, cause especially in the freelance game, you sort of become this sort of character where you're writing right. the same thing in the same beat over and over again, um, to make a living. Um, and editors sort of think of you as this sort of, this is what this person can do. And right. I don't think that any of us are sort of constrained to one kind of thing. Right. Of course. Um, one of your novels, Infidelity, um, was picked up for movie. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> is, is that, is that still in the works? Yeah, it's in development. That's pretty cool. Do you, it what, is cool, yeah. do you get to help with that at all? Um, no, well, no, <laughs> it's <laughs> one of those things where you like, you sign something and you, um, you wait. Um, right. So I'm in the, the waiting portion of that. But yeah, no, the production company was interested in it. We had some meetings, signed some contracts. Um, but yeah, no, that's it definitely an interesting part of this gig for sure. sure. Yeah, you are the third guest, third, who has some sort of movie potentially in the works. <laughs> so Denise White um, at EAG Sport Management, um, there's a movie called The Fixer that is kind of in the works where Jennifer Aniston's going to be the lead. What? Uh, yeah. Uh, Carrie Potts at ESPN. Um, there's a production company interested in her life rights. Um, that she's working through, and now you. Uh, you guys yeah. are just famous. <laughs> and it, I mean, it's, it's, for me, it's like, it, it's that whole idea of saying yes and then saying no, right? It's, it's right. throughout my career, I've just, I've been involved in so many different projects, and, and some of them have worked out, and some of them haven't, and um, I just think that, yeah, it's exactly that idea of, like, don't count yourself out. Right. Um, you know, you, the, the best Canadian sports writing, which launched in the fall, that that's mm -hmm. something I never in a million years thought I would be involved in. And it was, um, such an amazing project. And, and I, it really was just a case of having conversations with people and saying, Hey, let's do this. This would be a great thing to do. And everybody saying, yes. Um, and I know that doesn't always happen, but when right. it does, it can be a really beautiful thing. Oh, I agree. I mean, I, I'm fortunate that people like you and the others that I've mentioned and everyone else who have been on the podcast have been so, um, 
gracious and excited to come on the podcast. I mean, when I first came up with the idea, <clears throat> you know, I was worried that people were going to think it was stupid or um, that I wasn't the right person to be doing it for them, uh, for it. And everybody who I've uh, communicated with, you know, timing may not work, but the, the idea of it has made everyone excited. So um, it's cool when things like that work out. Well, I've had a great deal of fun talking to you. So. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. <laughs> um, I wanted to ask about you and your writing habits. Do you have a like set routine or, or habit or thing that you follow when you have to get some writing done? Um, I, I, think, I think the answer to that is yes. Um, but also that it definitely shifts over time. So um, I've been freelancing full-time for um, going on three years now. Um, I'm just about to go on mat leave, which is a weird thing for a freelancer to do, but I'll see <laughs> how that goes. Um, and so I had to, you know, before that I was in a full-time job for seven years. Um, mm -hmm. So I had to learn how to... Um, turn my full-time job habits into freelancing habits. Um, so before I was just kind of like trying to slip writing in wherever I could. Mm -hmm. um, and when I became a full-time freelancer, I actually had to get better at managing my downtime. Um, so the challenge for me was not so much um, getting the work done. It was stopping the working. Um, okay. because when you make your own schedule, you can just sort of work endlessly right? Right. <laughs> um, at a non-efficient pace. Right. So I know a yeah. lot of freelancers have this sort of, um, they talk a lot about how they don't work very efficiently, but they work 12 hour days. So <laughs> I had to get sort of better at, um, stopping myself. So, you know, for me, it was like, if I could get my best writing in between 10 and three, um, that was great. So I would, you know, sort of wake up in the morning, go out, go for a coffee, go for a walk, come back, work from 10 to three, spend the rest of the day doing administrative stuff. Um, okay. and my, my freelancing was the kind of freelancing where, um, I was trying to sort of get a piece out a day, um, you know, and then have a couple of days of edits or whatever. So, I was trying to write maybe three pieces a week. Okay. Um, and I found that schedule sort of frenetic, right? A little bit yeah. too, like it was a little too much. Um, so I think for a lot of people, just sort of like trying to find out what works and also what sustains them financially, right? It's, sure. which can be a bit of a struggle. And lucky for me, I had some bigger projects on the go, um, which is sort of like longer term. Um, higher paying, longer term projects sure. that sort of sustain your freelance life. Um, but yeah, it was. It, there's definitely a learning curve in terms of balance, and it probably took me a good year to perfect it. It's certainly not perfect, right? And now I have this whole new struggle of your child coming. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So that's going to be a whole new thing to figure out. And I've actually been trying to figure out how to back away. 
um, you know, which is a whole emotional soup we don't have to get into, but I right. wrote about it in my last newsletter. <laughs> I know. Um, but yeah, no, I think like, again, I feel like the theme of this whole discussion has been everything is sort of like in flux and change. And one of the most valuable qualities we can have is to be resilient and buoyant and open to things evolving. So do you, um, do you have any other just general like morning or evening routines that you follow? Well, <laughs> I, as, as you may know from my Twitter feed, <laughs> I'm watching a great deal of episodic television right now. Yes. <laughs> um, because um, I am so pregnant that I can't really do much else. Um, I, I'm not, um, I have become quite the homebody. Um, and I think that I can't blame that I'm being pregnant. I think that's just my natural inclination when, you know, when I can't be at a stadium watching a sports event, I think I just want to be home. Um, well, so I'm big on like cooking, baking, watching TV. <laughs> right. And, and I'm our, the listeners exciting. don't, the, the listeners don't know this yet, but, uh, you were making a, uh, banana bread today. <laughs> Well, yeah. we were recording, um, and you're going to share the recipe with me. It's Jessica Luther's recipe, which yes, Jessica uh, Luther's banana bread recipe. Um, which also, um, you should check out Jessica Luther's banana bread recipe, her <laughs> podcast, Burn It All Down, and yes. also her writing. <laughs> yes, her writing. If if it's as good as her writing, it's going to be delightful. Um, exactly. Although, hopefully, not quite as tough um, because she writes about tough. <laughs> Really tough subjects. Um, she does indeed, yeah. Yes, and burn it all down. I'm a big fan. I had Shireen on um, the podcast uh, a month or two ago. Um, Who is also just an incredible human being and writer. Yes. Um, yeah. It's there, And I mean, that's the thing about, you know, these discussions around women contributing to the sports conversation. They're, these women are there, um, and they are contributing great things to the conversation. And, you know, it... it it's important for sports fans to sort of step out of their comfort zone and find these voices um, and, you know, learn and shift their perspectives on the game um, because, you know, it, it just makes the experience better for everyone. I think. No, I agree. And, you know, I told Sheree and I'm like, there are times where I don't necessarily agree with you guys. Um, and I think that's okay. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't mean that I'm not going to like the podcast, right? Because you sometimes want to hear other thoughts and opinions. And yeah, um, and there will be moments where I'm like, oh, but then there are moments where I'm screaming, yeah, burn it. Um, <laughs> so, you know, it's, uh, it, it's been a delight, you know, hearing them and, and being able to meet, um, you know, Shireen, even if it's just electronically. I mean, I've invited her to come down to Tampa um, and get away from the cold. And, of course, you're more than welcome as well. Um, once you get your little itty-bitty, you guys think about coming down for spring training, um, you better let me know if that happens. Because I will <laughs> yeah, be so fingers, mad. Fingers crossed. I can, I can make it for a few games. But yeah. who knows? Um, but I want to thank you so much for being on the podcast. Tell everyone where they can um, follow you. I'm going to have links to like all your books and your website um, and stuff like that. But tell them where else they could follow you. Um, 
Um, so I'm at Miss Stacy May on Twitter. Um, I, I will warn everybody that the off season um, content is is particularly boring. Um, <laughs> there's a lot of um, episodes recaps of Grey's Anatomy presently, um, but uh, you can uh, subscribe to the Baseball Life Advice newsletter at tinyletter.com/slash/stacymaysells. Um, yeah, other than that, I'm just counting down the days until pitchers and catchers report. I know, and it's so exciting. And our in in Boston, the big day is moving day, truck day. Yeah, uh, truck day. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, yeah. I know I'll I'll start to see pictures of all of that soon in the next uh, yeah, couple of weeks. Yeah, to look forward to. Um, yeah, I feel like. This, you know, we were trying to schedule this podcast, and it felt like a like a um, off season podcast. But now it feels like preemptive. It's so soon. Thank you again to Stacey May for coming on LTPF, um, especially when you only had three weeks left in your pregnancy. Um, I had a ton of time speaking with you. I can't wait to dig into your other novels and um, we'll have links to all of her books, um, a whole bunch of her writing and a link to the newsletter um, so you can sign up and receive it. It is definitely a bright spot in the week. And uh, thank you to all of you who are listening. Um, Please make sure you're rating and reviewing. Um, And next week, I'm going to pull that winner. Um, I haven't done it yet. (laughs) Sorry, guys. Um, But I'll pull the winner of um, Amy Trask's book and uh, make an announcement then. But please make sure you continue to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, and RadioInfluence.com. And of course, thank you to my guys, Jerry and Jason, over at RadioInfluence.com for constantly dealing with me and my procrastination. (laughs) I appreciate it. Things have been crazy around here. Um, And thanks to our sponsors this week, Easy Kicks, Uh, Florida International University Online, and Ruby Receptionist. I hope you all have a great week. This is a Crush Performance Quick Fix on Radio Influence. Do you think going to flag football, which is a big, big conversation right now, in the developmental levels would be a good move? I don't want to say it's a slippery slope, but there's real two, really two strong sides to this story. We have NFL players saying they won't let their kids play based on what we know. But we also have NFL players saying that absolutely their kids are going to play. Um, we see major changes in sports. And I think nobody's been more progressive when it comes to head injuries than the NFL for, for a number of reasons. Legally, that's one of them for sure. But despite the reasons why they're doing it, um, they've done some really, really good work. And I think that also in terms of changing the rules, to increase player safety, they're the one, one of the most progressive leagues out there. And then I guess maybe we have to go away from the pro game uh, to those players who, who play the game from, you know, a little tyke football, you know, the pony leagues and, you know, the, the developmental leagues or around the country and around North America. And a lot of those kids will never play college ball. And they'll certainly never play professional ball, but they're still at risk. Crush Performance with the Crusher, Jeff Crushell, can be found on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Google Play, and RadioInfluence.com.